Welcome to the first episode of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen story. I'm Glenn Gordon. The quote I've tried to live by is from Theodore Roosevelt, and it says it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. I've tried to be that man in the arena. It wasn't that long ago that you called me up and you said, I have an amazing proposition. It has nothing to do with Freedom Scientific and it has nothing to do with Mushroom FM. And I, of course, called you back intrigued. And you asked me to work with you to sort of do an audio biography, which only makes sense because you're such, such a man of the spoken word. Uh, why now? I suppose because I've just hit 50 and because I've exited the assistive technology industry, sort of the international stage after a long stint. And now, of course, on the day that we publish this with the New Zealand government making me a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit, which was a wonderful surprise. It just feels like everything's coming together. And I'd like to tell my story. You're not feeling your mortality, are you? I am. In a good way, though, I like being 50. I like having gotten the hang of life a little bit. And I do think it's ironic that just as you feel like you are getting the hang of life, you're conscious of the fact that you're probably more than halfway there. But I think I've always enjoyed biographies. I love reading them or listening to them. And so I thought, well, it has been quite an eventful trip. And it would be nice to just chronicle that for those who might be interested. You have always exuded to me a profound amount of self-confidence. And I'm curious the degree to which that goes back to your your parents, and I'm thinking that might be a good place to start. I was a pretty gregarious child, there's no doubt about that. And I don't know whether that's necessarily nurture or whether it's just in my genes, because I always used to run around doing crazy things. One of my earliest memories, actually, is wandering up to the attic in the old farmhouse where we grew up, and I'm the youngest of five kids. And I remember going up to the top of the stairs. They were sort of spiraling stairs. And at the top in the attic where we stored stuff was this baby's bath. <laughs> and for some reason, I thought it would be a great idea and I must have been only about two, I think, to get into this baby's bath and sort of shove it to the top of the stairs and launch it. And the baby's bath went hurtling down the spiral staircase, making a hell of a good racket, you know, bump, bump, bumpity, bumpity. And I remember everybody running, wondering what had happened. Once I'd done this once, it just became a regular fixture because I thought this was just a great trick. In the end, they had to take the baby's bath away. But there were lots of things like that. I used to ride this horse thing that had wheels. And I realized that if you got it right, you had this really cool ride in the 
outside of our house, there was a hilly part that I started on. And if you turned right at exactly the right time, so you had to have really good echolocation to do that, you would then continue up a hill and pass the back door and you'd keep going for quite a, a distance until the thing petered out. If you didn't turn right at exactly the right time, you would catapult into the rose bushes. And so in the process of perfecting this, I got all sorts of little marks on my head and my body, and they probably would have sent the child protection services out these days. But it was fun. They, My parents kind of let me just be a kid, but I suspect they didn't really have a lot of choice in the matter because I was pretty stubborn and, and outgoing. So what was your parents' first brush with blindness? Was it you? No, my brother is blind. He's 15 years older than I am and still is after all this time, you know. He and I, and also my nephew, we have a condition called Nori disease. And when my brother was born, my parents didn't realize this. And they took him to the doctor when it seemed he wasn't responding to visual stimulus. My parents were country people. They were young too when my brother was born. My mum was 16 when she got married and my dad was 21. My brother was born just over a year after they were married. So mum was 17 when he was born. So they were really, really young. They had no idea about blindness or anything like that. So it was a big shock to their system. But they were just told it was one of those things. And then we had three girls come into the household, my three sisters, and they were sighted. When I was born, my dad was a little bit nervous, I suppose, and uh, he realized pretty quickly that, again, I wasn't responding to visual stimulus. And it was then that they discovered that there was this condition called Nori disease. Now, it turns out, as far as we can gather, that my grandmother on my mother's side probably had an affair with a musician who was blind and that that was the event that caused my mother's conception. And that's where we think it has come from, but we don't know. And my grandmother never really divulged the details. And so it's often occurred to me over the years, especially when I was younger and just getting into the blindness political scene in New Zealand, that maybe I did come across my grandfather at different times in my life and never knew that it was him or he never knew it was me. I was just thinking, your brother must have been born somewhere in the late 50s. I wouldn't have thought that there were many resources available to them. He was born in 1954, that's right. And one of the resources that was available, though, was that a lot of blind people worked for the blindness organization then. They had a blind social worker, Jack Short was his name, and he came to visit mum and dad to talk about what might be possible for my brother, and they got firsthand to see a blind person who was traveling around the country and doing things, and those sorts of things are really important, I think, for people who have never encountered blind people before. They wonder what's going to become of their kid who is blind, how should they treat them, and it was a big deal because, of course, he had the whole non, my brother Colin, he had the whole non-24 thing. <laughs> so even now, my mum will still talk about the fact that in the middle of the night, Colin would be up as a tiny kid rocking his rocking horse because he had no circadian rhythm, whereas his, his body clock was um, on a regular schedule. So 
they had no idea about what all this meant and whether that was typical for blind people. And, and so, yeah, resources were limited. But in a way, they were actually quite bountiful in the sense that they were given access to adult blind role models. Do you think Colin got the same freedom and the same ability to sort of screw up and learn his own lessons as you did? Or do you think that was a learned behavior on the part of your parents? I think it's a learned behavior in two areas. First, I remember when my firstborn came along, Heidi, and we wrapped her in cotton wool pretty much. And every time something happened, like she would be bouncing on the bed and she'd fall off the bed and we'd just think it was the end of the world. And and, and we'd, we'd do all these great checks and things. By the time number four came along, we'd kind of like pick them up, give them a hug, dust them off and get on with life. So I think the more experienced you become as a parent, the more laid back you get. So I think I definitely benefited from all the knowledge that my parents gained about blindness from having another blind son. But I also think a lot of it is just one's nature as well. And I was definitely a really outgoing, gregarious child who really couldn't be stopped. I assume that when he was going to school, and potentially when you were going to school, the only choice was a school for the blind. Is that correct? Yes. I think when I started going to school, a few more choices were emerging. But my parents made a lot of sacrifices for us. My dad did a lot of jobs on the railways and in farming. He eventually managed to buy his own poultry farm. And that's where I was raised for the first couple of years of my life. But they had a really bad experience where my brother did not like boarding at the School for the Blind, living in at the School for the Blind, even though my parents had moved to Auckland and he came home in weekends. But he didn't take to it at all, and it really broke my dad's heart. And so my parents ultimately bought a house quite close to the School for the Blind, pretty much opposite it. And they rented it out when they had the poultry farm. But when I came along, my dad, not long after that, had quite a major heart attack, and uh, he was plagued by heart disease for the remainder of his life, even though he did what he was told and ate the supposedly appropriate low-fat thing. And so he started working at Johnson & Johnson, a kind of manual um, packing job. We moved into this house that we used to rent out by the School for the Blind, and I was able to go to school as if it were my regular school. Sometimes I would even walk to school and um, do studies at the School for the Blind, but I was able to come home again at night. And I think that gave me a really good combination of skills because the class sizes were really small. We were constantly in front of teachers who were literate in blindness terms. They knew Braille because they were used to teaching blind kids. They didn't take any nonsense from us. You know, they, we, we, weren't, we weren't able to use our blindness as an excuse for not being able to achieve anything, there were some really awful tyrants and terrible experiences that happened to me there, but I can't deny that I had a really good education. What were the skills that you got there that you think you probably wouldn't have gotten in public schools where you were the only blind kid? I think being with other blind kids encourages you to raise the bar. Sometimes when you're 
the only blind child in a mainstream environment, you're kind of treated as either an outcast or a superstar. But when you're at a school where everybody else is like you, you're just another kid. I also think that um, having people all the time who were able to teach Braille was really important. And some of the time these days, the teachers of blind kids are really stretched and they only can give instruction in Braille for a limited period before they have to go to another school, you know, get in their car and go somewhere else. So we were very lucky to have that concentrated pocket of resources. Also access to the very early technology that started to emerge. It was easier because you only had to buy a couple of pieces of what was then very expensive technology and have it at that one school for the blind. I remember doing Opticon lessons, for example, quite early on in the piece. And I didn't stay at the School for the Blind forever. So I, I did about, I think, seven years at the School for the Blind. And then we were put in the mainstream with a resource room with a couple of teachers who were there to ensure that we were able to succeed in that mainstream environment. So I think it was a pretty good combination. So let's put mainstreaming on hold for a second. I had a, a couple of other follow-up questions. Do you remember when you first knew that you were blind? Yes, I think it was when I went to kindergarten. Now, in New Zealand, kindergarten is where you go when you're about three or four. And I did go to a mainstream kindergarten. And I remember then it became very clear to me that I was being treated a little bit differently and that clearly other kids had this sort of skill set, if you will, that I didn't have. And I was interested in this and thought it was kind of special. I never really saw it as a disability. And my parents never really encouraged me to see it as a disability. I just saw it as a bit of a distinction. And sometimes it was a bit of a nuisance, but it made me feel kind of special, I suppose. Did you get opportunities as this blind kid that you might have thought you were just sort of entitled to, but that sighted kids wouldn't have gotten. I suppose so. I remember there was this massive Christmas parade that they used to have in Auckland. They still do actually, I think, have it in Auckland. But in those days, it was organized by a department store called Farmers, which is a big national chain. And this was the occasion. And in those days, it was much less commercial than it is now. So the floats that you had in those parades were things like um, Little Bo Peep and the old woman who lives in a shoe and all sorts of nursery rhyme characters. And it was all really, really nice. And I remember that in those days, the farmer's company had a rooftop garden and they would put kids with disabilities not just blind kids, but a lot of blind kids up there. And it was quite enlightened for the time because we're talking about the early to mid-70s. And they would have audio description of the parade before we even knew what the term audio description was. And they would have these famous broadcasters. I, I was just totally fascinated to be in their presence, of course. And they would give commentaries of what was going on down below. And then after the audio description of the parade, they would take us kids uh, into this uh, special part of the department store and give us a special Christmas party where Santa would give us quite good presents, actually. I mean, they were really substantial. So I was conscious that, 
you know, sometimes being blind sort of bought you privileges in some ways that other kids resented you having. I was very aware of that too, that, you know, other other kids were resentful of the fact that we would have this kind of access that they didn't. And I think in my case, that was really exacerbated by the fact that I got involved in radio so early. And so even when it comes to blind kids, I was way out there in terms of being a recognized name around Auckland, which is the largest city in New Zealand and where I grew up. And so I would go places and my parents would call me by name and then people would pop up and say, oh my goodness, are you the Jonathan that's on the radio? And so I guess I have always been, since I was very, very little, in a prominent kind of position. And that has its positives, but it also has a hell of a lot of negatives as well. So how early was early in terms of radio? Well, radio's just been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. I do do remember when my mum was still on the poultry farm and doing the eggs in the mornings, and I would listen with her to a talk show called Powerline, which was done by a guy called Echo Smith. And it suddenly became clear to me that these people were just ordinary people calling in on their telephones. And so when I was about four, I'd learned to dial the telephone it was with a rotary dial. And I thought, I, I can do this too. So one day I sort of snuck into the house and I called this number that they were giving out on the talk show. And I got through to the producer person who obviously thought it would be a bit of fun to put me on the air. And as it turned out, I could actually hold down a reasonable conversation, and it was all very cute, I suppose. So I pretty regularly started calling in to the talk show, and uh, it was done by Jeff Sinclair by then. And uh, one day we were at home, and we got a telegram, (laughs) and it was from the manager of this radio station that I had been calling, asking if one of my parents would call him. And I remember they had this discussion about which one of them was going to, because they seemed to think it was like a cease and desist notice, you know, (laughs) tell your blind kid to stop playing with the damn phone. So I think my dad actually drew the short straw, which was interesting because my dad was a very quiet kind of man, but he made the call for some reason. And the manager of the radio station said, you know, your son's having quite an impact with these calls he's making. Would you feel okay about him coming into the studio because Christmas is coming up and we'll do a show where kids can call in and talk about what they want for Christmas and what Santa's bringing them, what they'll be eating for Christmas dinner and have a kid's phone in and he'll essentially be co-hosting this thing. My dad said, I'm sure Jonathan would love to do this. And I remember the, the first time I did it, I could not sleep the night before. I think one of my sisters was going to take me in on the bus. And um, I was so, so excited. You you would not believe how excited I was. And I went in there very, very nervous when I first did it, really nervous, but had a ball. And then that kind of became a tradition. And it was a hugely popular tradition. You know, the, the, the ratings were such that apparently the numbers really did go up when I was on. And I did that for a long, long time until I was about 14 or 15, by which stage I had become a horrible, monosyllabic, cynical 
grumpy teenager and it, <laughs> it just didn't work anymore. Once you got going and you sort of did this year after year, was your blindness a recurring theme or did that sort of fade into the background? I think it was always there. But no, I, the first couple of years I did it, the blindness was a bit of a factor. One year, I remember, I saw this ad on the television for a thing called a Baldwin fun machine. And not being able to see this thing, I wasn't really sure what it was, but I was aware from the ad that you could make all sorts of cool music with it. And the price may well have been displayed on the screen, but of course, I couldn't see the screen. And leading up to one of these Christmas things, Jeff said to me, what do you want for Christmas this year, Jonathan? And I said, I want a Baldwin fun machine. And it turned out that these Baldwin fun machines were, I think, $1,300 a piece. And in the mid-1970s, $1,300 was a heck of a lot more money than it is now. And I mean, it's a lot of money now, but it was a huge amount of money then. What they did one day while I was at school was they had a radiothon. And what they were going to do was raise some money to buy a fun machine so that I could have it during the summer holidays, which, of course, in New Zealand happen at Christmas time. And then they would have me donate it to the School for the Blind so all the blind kids could benefit from it. And uh, I used to take a radio with me all the time, and I'd sort of sneak the radio out sometimes. I actually just happened to tune in and heard this radiothon going on. And it turned out that they raised so much money, there was so much generosity out there, that they had more than enough for two. So they bought one for me to, to keep and one to give to the school for the blind. So that was pretty interesting because it was supposed to be this massive surprise, but I had... Uh, snuck my radio into class and heard some of the radiothon. So I had to act surprised when they uh, told me when I went into the studio. And uh, I think my surprisedness was a little bit fabricated, but, you know, I was only a kid. So it was amazing that they did that. But over time, uh, a lot of that stopped and we just sort of settled down to do the radio. And within about three years, I was actually operating the panel. So when I first went in, I was pretty much a guest, but by about year three, I was sitting in front of a panel of, uh, uh, you know, I think they had three lines and you'd operate the mics and things like that and the faders. And I absolutely loved that. I felt like, yeah, really empowered being behind that thing. So you're a pack rat. You must have recordings. Do you indeed? I do have a few. They're awful, yeah. Oh, good. Well, I, I think we should play one of one, <laughs> uh, one yeah. of them here. <laughs> All right. Hello? Hello, Jonathan. My name's Michelle. Michelle. I'd like to wish you a, a very, very happy Christmas. Thank you. Thanks very much, Michelle. Bye. Bye. That was the shortest call on record. That's going to be in the Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> <laughs> Hello? Hello? Oh, okay. Gosh. Well, well, well. Hey, don't turn it off. Just push it on hold instead of off. Hold. Come oh, along. Come along. Come. No, no. The next one. one. Yes. And then say, we just got a short break while fruitcake earns the bread and butter or the Christmas cake, and then we're off. Okay, we'll just have a short break so that Lynn can uh, get enough money for a turkey. What are these buttons up here doing? I'll show you those ones later. Yeah. There, if you push one of those, we go into orbit. <laughs> True, we end up on the moon. Hello? Hello, Jonathan. This is Sharon here. Hello. Um, have a really Merry Christmas. Thank you. How old are you? Is it Sharon, is it? Yeah. How old are you, pet? Ten. Ten. You Not got a very, Sharon. She's got a nice voice, hasn't she? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's Sharon. Will you stop arguing Karen. the toss with Lynn? <laughs> Lynn, throw her out the window for his vaccine. <laughs> uh, what do you want Santa to give you for Christmas? Uh, I want a bike. A bike. What are you having for Christmas dinner? Turkey. Turkey. Mm. Yeah. All this talk of food's making me very hungry, you know. Well, you, you talked me into it. <laughs> Have a very Merry Christmas. Thank you, Jonathan. Okay, bye. Right. Hello? Hello, Jonathan? Uh, hi, David. Well, um, I'd like to tell you a story. When I was about five years old, mm. I was sitting on Santa's knee. Yeah. And I pulled his bed and part of it came off. <laughs> Poor old Santa. <laughs> <laughs> Poor fella. I got one shock. <laughs> but after shock, the Santa got all bit. <laughs> Poor old Santa, you have my sympathy. <laughs> uh, I, I never go on Santa's knee again. I'm too scared. <laughs> How old are you now, mate? Uh, coming up to 13 years old. Oh, well. 13. You might be safe but now. I bet you don't like to think about it now. No. So much. Okay. Nice to hear from you. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Bye. Bye. Hello. Hello. What's your name? Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Um, my mother and father are blind, and my mum wished you a Merry Christmas, and she said she knows you. Does she? What's her? What? What is she? Mrs. What? Bosnahan. Oh. She knows you from the um, you know, the home way. Yeah. And I just wanted to wish you a happy Christmas, and um, and uh, I love your things, you know, that talk that, and I think you're a marvellous little boy, and same, and same to Jeff. He's not a little boy. Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> I am, and I'm a nice little boy. Yeah, you're a nice little boy. Okay, okay have a merry, very merry Christmas. Thank you. Yeah, oh, push, oh. The, push the off button now. Okay, bye. Bye-bye, love. Come along to the left. Along to the left, that's it. Now, we'll just have a last break, and we've closed the line, so we can just have a chat about a couple of things before we end the program, so... Yeah, well, shall we, shall we start the break? You tell her that fruitcake's got to earn the bread and butter or something. Uh, yeah, Lynn's uh, got to earn uh, her bread and butter because <clears throat> they're pretty poor. I'd just like to thank the Auckland Organ Centre to start with for uh, helping us there with one of the... Uh, one of the two organs that we bought. And uh, uh, Musical Sounds Limited at Great South Road. You can you should make, come in and make the commercials. You're better than some of the guys we got around here. Um, the Auckland Organ Centre used to be called Beggs Wiseman's, isn't yes. it? In Tannywire Street out in... Um, Glen Innes. In Glen Innes, is it? Glen Innes. I thought that was a very snooty area. Mm. Where else do you live now? What area do you live in? Manurewa. Wait, don't push the other buttons. Just want that one now so we're safe. You don't have, <laughs> don't push anything. It'll have us off here. You live in Manurewa? Yeah. Is that a nice area? Yes, it's quite, quite nice, you know. I mean, is it, is it as good as Rimuera? Oh, uh, Rimuera. We never lived in Rimuera. Neither have I. I can't afford it. You're going to have a good Christmas, obviously, and you're going to go down to Taranaki and see your sister down there. And who was the one that rang up today? Kathy. Kathy. She's the one that's 19. Yeah. Well, I wish I was young again. You, all your sisters are as nice as, as, as Charmaine. Hey, how would you like me for a brother-in-law? <laughs> That'd be a hard case, wouldn't it? Hey, we've got line one still going. No, we haven't, no, because it's off. It's been There's the off button there, which has been pushed along there. Yeah. All right. So you, you'll have them all right next year. What are you going to do when you grow up, mate? Be a talkback announcer. Are you? 
Yeah, well, you'll be able to take over from Jeff. I'm due for a shift next year. <laughs> you don't want to come in and be a, um, a disc jockey like Doug Harvey? No, hey? no, I'd rather press all these buttons. You'd rather press the buttons and run the talkback, would you? Yeah. Well, you're going to have to learn a lot. You have to read lots of books and uh, and be able to talk about stimulating conversations. And and turn off the microphone like this. I'm thinking, what you? You're not supposed to turn off in the middle of the program. So radio was in your blood. Was that something that was in the blood of your friends growing up as well? Yeah. First of all, my brother was an incredible brother to have. I was very lucky with all my family, in fact, because my brother, 15 years older, so by the time I was sort of four or five, you know, he was 19 or 20, and he also loved the radio. And so we would listen to a lot of shortwave. We would listen to radio. He would be interested in politics, which I got into from an insanely early age and really did take a genuine interest in it. I remember when I was five, a Saturday night when our then prime minister died and listening to the coverage of that with Colin and, and, and it was amazing. My sisters were, were great in a different way. They used to sort of take me everywhere. I must tell you, I must get this in here. I remember when I was about four, I went with my sister Kathy on the bus to the shopping mall and the bus driver wanted to know if I was her son. And of course, she was just a teenage girl, and especially in those days. You know, she was just mortified by the idea that people would think that 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 she was my mother. And even then I twigged to this. So on the bus, I kept saying, ma'am, at the top of my lungs, and she was wanting to throttle me. But we did this a lot. We, we went to malls and movies, and I had a really active lifestyle. M my parents both come from really large families, sort of eight and nine children each. So we had lots of uncles and aunties visiting all the time. People would just turn up and mum would have masses of food. You know, it was a very social time. But in terms of the radio, all the blind people that I've ever come across loved it. And when I got a bit older, we all had sort of pretend radio stations. That was one of my favorite games, playing radios. But the other thing that we did was we would make these tapes, kind of radio-style tapes, some of which were quite inventive. I remember having this Panasonic uh, radio cassette thing. Actually, in the interest of full transparency, it was my brother's Panasonic radio cassette thing that I hijacked. And I remember um, being inspired by Kenny Everett, who was a stunning British broadcaster, in my view, the, the best broadcaster in the sort of commercial realm who's ever lived anywhere. And he used to do a lot of multi-track stuff. And I worked out that if you held the record button halfway down, you bypassed the erase head. And that way, I was able to do really primitive multi-tracking and do these kind of harmonized jingles and stuff. So I used to put a lot of effort into these tapes, which we would then circulate around our group. And a bunch of us did these tapes and things, you know. So radio was very big. And we had the the big advantage in New Zealand of not having many permanent radio stations, but by then there was this system in place where you could apply for a license to run a temporary radio station. And so because there was quite a lot of spectrum that was free in New Zealand in those days, these little radio stations would pop up and they fascinated us kids because there were usually two or three frequencies 
where these temporary radio stations would appear from time to time. And I remember we would always check them and there'd be such excitement when a carrier appeared on one of those frequencies and then a test tone and then some music. And then finally, if you got lucky, you would be, you would hear a test announcement and you would be told what this new temporary radio station was and what its purpose was. And we lived for those things, you know, that were just so exciting to us. Were they there for like, you know, now we're going to have a temporary radio station for a parade or a convention or something, and then it would go away, that that kind of thing? Yes, there was an element of that. And sometimes the university would run uh, a radio station for the orientation period when the university year was starting. Uh, We had a thing called Maori Language Week. Uh, Maori is the indigenous people of New Zealand, and uh, they would sometimes have a station dedicated to Maori Language Week. I remember there was one called Radio Advent when the Seventh-day Adventists would get together for a couple of weeks in the summertime and that would pop up. I mean, it was a really esoteric mix of things that this temporary warrant concept was used for. Did you do that for your school? Yeah, I did. Well, I started off When I was very young, I got given, when I was 10, actually, this thing called an Andy Gibb microphone. And (laughs) I've been told by people in the States that there was a similar product with a different branding. I forget what they called it in the States, but it was a mic with a telescopic antenna. It broadcast on, by default, on 800 kilohertz, but you could turn a screw uh, to adjust the frequency. And I also discovered there was another little tweak you could make that actually improved the output power a little bit. And then by kind of um, exposing the terminals of the antenna and connecting it to something much larger, we had this massive wrought iron railing, this continuous wrought iron railing uh, around our school. And I found that I really got a power boost by right, ripping out the, the telescopic antenna and connecting a wire that then connected to the wrought iron railing. Was this just experiment and figure something out because there was no internet there was no no place you could go do research yeah well one of the nice things about being around the school for the blind is you did get access to some older blind role models and i did know a couple of people who were hams who were sort of giving me a bit of a hand with this sort of concept but it did mean that quite early on from the age of about 10 we would sort of slightly um, modify this microphone toy thing and we could do some things at the school but then we got a uh, an fm transmitter that was also low power and that was great because it was stereo and we connected it to a little lamp that i had and a cd player and that was still pretty primitive it's a mad music of maniacal murray head one night in Bangkok uh, from the musical chess, which is all about an American and a Soviet chess player um, going for their lives and having a great chess match there and all the political wrangles and struggles that go with it and the lives and loves. Quite like a soap opera, really. One night in Bangkok, the track. And um, coming up, we've got some music from Ario Speedwagon. But uh, I reminded you that this is a test transmission for signal assessment purposes from Radio Enterprise 93 on the FM dial. And uh, we hope to be on properly for a few weeks in April, March, April, sometime, transmitting a program for the students of Homeo College so that they can get involved and know a bit about radio and how the inside of it works and things. 
And right now the tests you're hearing are to make sure that it reaches the targeted areas and that it also doesn't reach unwanted areas. So hopefully by now we've ironed out those problems and we're getting exactly who we want at the strength we need. But right now... We close this part of the test with a song from the Eagles. Great band, of course, who have now split up. Such great soloists as Glenn Fry and Joe Walsh come out of it. And Don Henley, too, of course. This is uh, the title track to the very famous album Hotel California. You're listening to Radio Enterprise. On this test transmission which is drawing to a close at around four this afternoon, and we hope you've enjoyed what you've been hearing. And that with uh, all things going well, all things being equal, we'll see you in April on a proper broadcast with better equipment, more processing, and a generally nice, high-quality sound. Leave you with the Eagles. But my objective was to see if we could do one of these temporary stations, official-like, that I had been listening to all my life. And I started with this idea when I was about 12 or 13, and I started making calls to find out, what do you have to do? And they sent me all these forms. You had to say who was going to be on your radio station, every single person that was going to go on the air, uh, what qualified them to be on the radio what what the purpose of your temporary warrant was going to be. It was a voluminous application that you had to submit. And even though I gave it a go, when I was 12 or 13, I just couldn't quite make it. It was complex. But finally, in 1986, I thought I could have a really good go at this because by this stage, I had the Keynote XL, the original Keynote that um, a company called Wormold International Sensory Aids had made. And I also had my Apple IIe running Braille Edit. So I knew I had the tools to um, to write an application and also probably just enough skill with a little bit of help. So I seriously sat down and thought, how are we going to do this? My motive for doing it was that I really wanted to work in radio. There was nothing else I ever wanted to do. I had received a lot of discouragement about this goal. I remember talking to a blind guy who was a vocational advisor when I was about 11 or 12 and said, I said, I want to work on the radio. And he said, well, radio is becoming very computerized. And in those days, you know, computers weren't that accessible. Uh, He said, you know, it could be a very difficult career. So it was discouraging, but I wasn't going to be put off. So I thought the best way that I can try and create some opportunity is to set up a radio station of my own for a short period and get everybody I can think of in the radio industry to come and look at me do it. And then so I put the application in finally, got it done and spell checked and printed off on this dot matrix printer. I think you had to print off several copies and sent it in and then I remember one day I got I got home from school and mum said there's a, a very official looking letter for you and I knew it was going to be either a yes or a no from the broadcasting tribunal this very official government body that regulated these things at the time and um When we opened it up and it was the warrant to broadcast from the 10th to the 23rd of May, 1987, I could not believe it. I I just could not believe it. And 
Then the hard work started because I decided I want to prove that we can do this like any other commercial venture. So I started raising ads to hire all the equipment. We went out and and I basically made the pitch and I said, listen, blind people running a radio station, that's a novelty. There's going to be masses of news coverage about this and there will be people tuning in just to hear what it's like. You want to be on here and and be associated with it. And people said, yeah, okay. So we raised enough money to go to a proper broadcasting equipment hire place where this massive mast erected at the School for the Blind. We had a studio equipped, ironically, with one of the desks that I used to operate back in the day when I was doing the the talk stuff. (laughs) That, That desk had been decommissioned, but it was still there. So they sent it out to me. And I got a bunch of my blind friends who um, we recorded jingles. Uh, we did 18 hours a day for two weeks the, f- the first year. And then I repeated it the second year and we did 24-7. And it worked. I mean, I then called up every single person in the radio industry I could think of, managers. I got broadcasters to come out and we picked 14 of them who would do a guest slot, really high profile radio personalities who came out and did just a two hour stint. and saw us in action but most importantly i got to meet them i was able to sit down and you know have a have a coffee with them and ask them questions and make sure they knew my name and the result of all that was that when it came to working in radio there were so many doors open it was ridiculous it's pretty clever and the the thing that jumps out at me now which i'm sure would not have been the thing that jumped out at me back then is how many steps ahead of simply getting on the air, you were already thinking when you did this. Yes, there was a generation before me that tried this and didn't quite make it. And I think one of the skills I do have is the ability to to plan, to come up with an ultimate goal, but then work out the intermediate steps. How do I actually get to this goal? And I think that applies whether it be just in life in general or, or specifically with projects that I've undertaken. And, you know, I, I learned a lot. I made some mistakes. And I also got chicken pox about two weeks before we <laughs> went on the air. That was a definite mistake. It <laughs> wasn't a good idea because by that stage, the equipment was being installed and uh, I had uh, people to, to supervise and things to set up. And uh, people were looking at my spotty face and like, get away from me. I don't want to catch what you've got. But when that carrier, and we were on 1404 kilohertz with 250 watts, which was pretty awesome, really. You know, I mean, that they gave us 250 watts. That that was enough with the right antenna to get very good coverage on AM. And when that carrier came on for the first time, even just the carrier being there and knowing that I was responsible for that carrier, mate. It was it was pretty sweet. That must have been a real high. Yeah, it was. It was. And and then I opened it up on the Sunday morning, the 10th of May, 1987, and we played Changes by David Bowie as the opening song. And man, was I nervous. I don't think I got any sleep the night before that either. <laughs> you do get nervous, despite your overwhelming exuding of confidence. Oh, God, I get super nervous, yeah. Yeah, I do, and I, and I still do. I Sometimes even in, in the earlier days when we were doing big special events for, say, Mushroom FM or, or launching Mushroom FM or relaunching it, I get very nervous. I want to move on to so many other things, but I want to go back to a couple of things from your, from your youth. 
One of them is, do you remember who your best friend was back then? Oh, yeah, and he still is. We're unlikely best friends. His name is Mark Wilson, and he and I met in the most terrible of circumstances, actually, because I had another friend at that stage who sadly died when we were kids. You know, when you do go to schools for the blind and you meet kids with conditions that have caused blindness but can often be terminal, you do come across death perhaps a little earlier than you otherwise might. And I remember a number of people that I went to school with dying, you know, and, and there wasn't a lot of a lot of counseling or anything for for it in those days. But we had this double swing and my my then friend and I would would occupy this double swing. And um Mark, I remember, he came along and he wanted a turn on the swing. And we said, you know, just give us a few more minutes and we'll let you have a turn. And we kept saying this to him. Is it, he said, is it my turn now? And I said, no, just, just a little bit longer. And then, of course, the school bell would ring to go back into class. And he'd run off crying. I mean, what a what a horror. He was very gullible, it Jonathan. It was terrible. It was, it was a terrible way to behave to him. But we did we did eventually get to know one another. And we, we've we been the best of friends ever since. He's a very, very gifted musician. Uh, he's a very loyal uh, friend. We've seen each other through a lot. And um, Mark and I also used to do the radio thing. We spent a lot of time at each other's houses. But there was a kind of a circle of us, and many of us were into either music or radio or both. Did you get into trouble? Yeah, I was a pretty mischievous kid and young adult, and I used to love practical jokes and pranks. I still do, actually. My favorite one, and we're skipping ahead a wee bit, but we all got together for the school holidays in August, I believe it was of 1987, so I must have been just 18 then. And I don't think many of us particularly wanted a week of our school holidays taken up with this, but it was sort of required of us to be at this vocational seminar talking about future employment options and things. And there were a bunch of us who were in the hostels, the boys' hostel that the kids who boarded at the School for the Blind would normally be at during term time, but this was holiday time. So a bunch of us attending this seminar were there. And it so happened that the concert program, which is our publicly funded classical network, was migrating in Auckland from AM to FM. And while they were doing this, they had this cool tape loop, which would start off with Beethoven's Fifth, and then it would play a whole bunch of other popular classical tunes announcing what they were doing from time to time. And then there would be a long pause while the tape recued itself, and then it would start all over again. So we had this rather bossy person who was trying to keep us young people under control, and it was getting late, and he wanted us to settle down for the night because there were more seminars in the morning. And I suddenly had this really good idea. While the tape loop was winding itself back while there was a gap, I encouraged everybody who brought radios to turn them up onto the frequency full blast. I went into the common room and there was a big stereo system and I put it on on the FM frequency and turned it up full blast. Every radio we could find was on this silent frequency full blast. And then we all snuck back to bed. And we knew there was going to be this massive cacophonous musical explosion of sound. But we didn't know when it was going to happen. So we were all on tenterhooks. And then all of a sudden there was this massive 
massive from everywhere you could imagine. Ba 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 ba, and the housemaster guy was, "What the hell's going on?" And it took him ages to find all the radios and switch them off. But yes, not surprisingly, my mouth would get me into trouble. I wouldn't be hesitant about speaking my mind, and particularly as I got a little bit older. Uh, sort of 11, 12, 13, I started seeing injustices in the world. And I wasn't hesitant to raise those injustices or what I perceived to be inconsistencies. I felt that almost like it was a class thing, like the, the teaching class would always defend themselves without really giving consideration to the justice of the matter. And I think that those roots were planted in me as a result of a really awful experience I had with a teacher when I was about um, seven or eight, where I was subject to abuse by that teacher uh, in the swimming pool. I was pretty uh, scared of the water for some reason. No, I don't know, not scared in the beginning, but apprehensive about the water. Uh, it wasn't something I'd done a lot of. And uh, so this teacher got frustrated with me and grabbed my head in both hands and repeatedly ducked my head in the water and held it there for a few seconds and lifted it and ducked it again until I said I would try harder. And that just completely changed me, I think, in, in many ways. I think I became a little bit less gregarious, and it certainly changed my perception of authority, especially given that when... The next swimming day came along and I was shaking and basically unconsolable and my parents got out of me what had happened and my mother went marching up to demand some answers and the teacher denied having ever done it. And then they sent me away to a psychologist to find out why it was that I was making up these terrible stories. And so it was like the whole system had come down on me and protected this woman against what really was inappropriate abuse, which then turned into and, psych psychological abuse because she would then plead with me in front of the other kids in the class to please go swimming. It was just a terrible thing. And nobody believed me except my parents. And I do wonder what would have happened had they not believed me either. I just, I just shuddered to think that their belief in me when everybody else said I was making up stories meant the world to me. And as a as a kid, you don't have very many defenses at your fingertips. No, no, and especially, I think I'd like to think it was a different time. You know, I'd like to think that if those sorts of things happened now, there would be measures in place where there was a proper investigation. But at that time, there was a lot of protectionism going on, and and it kept happening. You know, and I know we're going to talk about advocacy a bit later, but these are the seeds, I guess, that planted all of this stuff. I remember we had a resource room at the high school I attended, and we would keep these voluminous Braille maths books. And there was one maths teacher that I had who used to jump around the textbook. So we might do chapter one, but then she decided we were going to now move to chapter 10. And of course, any braille reading blind student will know that that's a bit of a problem because the maths book was in a thing about 20 or 30 braille volumes. 
And I brought the next volume in sequence because I thought, well, I'll use my initiative and that's about the best I can do, not knowing what the next chapter is going to be. It turned out that I didn't need volume two, I needed volume 16 or something. So the maths teacher got angry with me and said, I'm going to make you write a hundred lines that say, I must remember to bring the right textbook to class. And I said to her, look, I've brought the right textbook. I just brought the wrong volume because Braille is so bulky. I was trying to be very reasonable. So I got another 50 lines added for talking back. And when I went to the resource room teacher to plead my case and say, listen, this is you know, this is a blindness issue here. By this stage, I was a high school student, so I was getting quite articulate about this stuff. They refused to intervene either. And it's one of the things that I've uh, it has encouraged me to do advocacy and speak up for people. So it did not in any way question your sense of confidence and your sense of being, but rather caused you to have a, a great sense, and reasonably so, of injustice. I wouldn't say it didn't cause me to question my confidence. I think I present myself as a pretty confident person, but some of that is sometimes it's 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 exterior stuff. I I uh, I, I I had quite a few significant crises as a teenager, actually, um, to the point that when I was in my late teens, I. Uh, was very depressed and um, and suicidal. So it hasn't always been easy. Uh, but I think you know, whether you're blind or not, many teenagers sometimes have an existential struggle like that. Yeah, and and on the one hand, it's really hard to 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 want to ask you about that. On the other hand, these are the kinds of things that I think other people who see you as being a profoundly confident person and competent person 24-7, at some level it really helps to hear that you too have had your your struggles. Yeah, I, I had a situation where somebody alerted me to the fact that there was a course that was being, it was a new course that was being put together for wannabe broadcasters. And this was after I'd done Radio Enterprise, the station at the School for the Blind. So I'd had a bit of experience. And I thought having a qualification that made it clear that I, I had done some broadcasting would be just another thing to do. And so I sent in a tape. And they got back to me pretty quickly after they heard this tape. And they said, yes, you know, we really want you to do the course. We think you'd actually... We want yes, your money. We Thank think you, you would be a credit to our course, actually. And so they told me how much the course was going to be. And by that stage, I was a, a penniless young university student with a, with a girlfriend to maintain. And I said, look, it's just the cost-benefit analysis. It, it ain't worth it. I don't think I can afford it. And I don't think I get enough out of it to warrant the cost. So then they called me back and they said, well, actually, we really, really want you to graduate from this course because we think it's going to be in the course's interests. So we'll give it to you for half price. And I said, cool, okay, cool. So I'll come in the night before and I'll put a few Braille labels on some cards and other media you're using just so I'm set to go and then we'll be good. And man, you could almost hear the the coldness descending on the phone call. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm blind. You know, it's no big deal. Um, I, I'm used to operating consoles and things, but I just need to put some Braille labels on stuff. 
And he said, look, forget it. There's no point in you doing this course because a blind person's never going to work in radio. And um, the nice thing about that is that a little bit later, quite a bit later, I ended up being his boss on one radio station that we both worked for. Um, but before that, it really knocked me down for a while. And I kind of started to think, what does the future hold for me if no matter how good I am, no matter how hard I try, people are going to just see the blindness and not get past it? And I mean, I guess I, I, uh, I, I like to take control of things, but I'm also quite a sensitive person. <laughs> um, I feel somebody once said to me quite quite observantly, I feel things very deeply. And that is that is true. I mean, and that's part of the reason why I've been, I think, an effective advocate, because I do feel things very deeply. But sometimes the downside of that is that you have to be careful um, not to feel things out of proportion. And for a while there, I just really felt like it didn't matter what I did. The world was against me. And uh, it, it was an awful way to feel. Yeah, I can, can understand that. I was just going to comment that one of the, the the real benefits of you being a feeling person is that the stories you tell and the experiences that you communicate are not just not just the facts, man. Yeah. <laughs> they actually have this nuance that's uh, you know really really interesting to to understand. When Jonathan and I continue our conversation, we'll hear how he pulled out of his deep depression using a formula that worked for him in the past, and this time. It earned him his first full-time professional radio gig. That, stories about high school, telephones, meeting his first wife, and more on Episode 2 of In the Arena. Thanks for listening.